Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly the order that they were published. In this episode, I will be continuing my examination of Philip Dick's uh, 1960 novel, Dr. Futurity. It's a bit... uh, It's a bit off basis to call this novel a novel of 1960. It was written way back in 1953, early in Dick's career, but he didn't get it published until 1960. In many ways, his ideas had developed a lot since uh, the time he originally penned this novel. Uh, But he wasn't really writing too much science fiction at this time in his life. He was trying to write more mainstream works. Yet, uh, for whatever reason, he published these old works. It's alongside another novel also written back in 1953 called Vulcan's Hammer, which I'll be looking at in the next series. So it's not one of his most respected works. It doesn't really feel like we're yet in the 1960s, even though uh, we are in terms of publication. It really much feels it feels very much like some of his earlier works, particularly in the fact that it's dealing with a type of dystopia. Dick was really playing in a lot of his early novels with different types of dystopias, different types of political authoritarianisms, and different kind of social systems, and then putting characters, you know, either in that world or from the outside experience in that world. But usually, he's dealing with characters from within inside. In Doctor Futurity, we have a character from uh, our future, actually, but who's thrust farther into the future and experiences a world that's vastly different from his own. And it's important that he is a doctor because the big difference between his world, the world he understood, and the one he gets brought to in the 25th century is that in the future, people don't respect life. So the world of a doctor is not necessary. Instead of doctors, people have euthaners. So they have basically people whose job it is to help people die rather when they're injured or sick rather than helping them stay alive. And then the question is, why was he brought to the future? Through what kind of technology and for what purpose? And then how can he really contribute to a world in which his entire profession is scorned? In fact, it's even criminalized. The world that our main character, our titular Dr. Futurity, his name is is Parsons, Jim Parsons. The the world he gets put into is, is rather fascinating and kind of relevant because it is a world that... Uh, rejects life or, or doesn't see life as that important but uh and therefore everyone lives to be only a very young age so the average age is quite young i think it's you know in the early teens at, at one point it's mentioned but it, it's basically in the early teens people who are older than their 30s are very rare in this world that's because people's lives really aren't preserved and then the social structure is, is such that it's almost kind of an institutionalized social darwinism people are broken up into different tribes pretty arbitrarily uh, and then despite having kind of a world culture that's been homogenized linguistically and racially, people are broken up into little tribes and they compete. And the winners of these conflicts, which are often emer- often become quite violent, the winners of these conflicts are the ones who are able to pass on their genetic material to the next generation. So while on the surface, this world seems to aggrandize youth and youthfulness, everyone is young, of course, but it doesn't really seem to be a 
a world in which the young are really creating anything. So I, I think it's a really kind of complex picture um, where the life of young people is kind of wasted and misused and they really have no future for themselves and therefore the only thing for them is to kind of die young. This novel actually reminds me of a novel that on the surface looks quite different, and that's called The Crack in Space, and it's one of his great novels of, of the 1960s. And in that one, you have a very clear, you know, domination of the economy and society by old people, people, some, some of them in their hundreds of years old, because of life extending technology. And at the, at the same time, young people are being put in cryogenic uh, suspension, because there's basically no place for them in the economy. So they get frozen there in the hopes that maybe they'll find another Earth or they'll settle another planet at some point in the future and then they'll be able to be settled there. Now here you don't have nothing quite like that, but what you do have is is kind of a, a rootless, kind of useless young population who just goes through with what's expected of them. And one result of that is a, is a lot of wasted lives, unfortunately. Now, in my previous two episodes, I looked at the first half of Dr. Futurity, and the plot's relatively simple. This man from the late 20th century, I think it's the 1990s, or maybe it's the early 21st century. It's, it's around that time. He's just driving home from work one day, and there's a car accident, and he wakes up, and he's 500 years or so in the future, and he notices that people in this world don't. Uh, try to save lives. In fact, if they see someone on the street, they try to run them down, assuming that they're on the street to kill themselves. He notices people have this polyglot, polyglot language. They're racially mixed, so there's kind of no clear racial distinctions. There's no clear ethnic distinctions either. Everyone has kind of a common world culture, but people are broken up into these tribes and they're often fighting. During one of these fights, he, well, he runs into a tribe and during a, one of these conflicts, a woman is injured. Uh, the doctor, uh, his, Jim Parsons, of course, tries to fix, save this woman's life. Um, and when other people see this, they're horrified that he tried to save her life. In fact, she wanted to be brought to a euthaner to be killed. Uh, for this, he's punished. But the person he talks to is a man named Stenog, who now everyone's sort of young, but he's by this world standards a little bit older. And he then proceeds to explain the world to Jim Parsons, realizing that he's from the future. And he actually is quite kind to him. He takes him to his house and even offers him if he wants to sleep with his wife, and which he's was but willing to do until he found out that Jim Parsons wasn't sterilized. Um, and, th and this is important because all reproduction is, is very carefully controlled in this world. It's, it's kind of like uh, or Brave New World in that way where reproduction and sex are separated. But in this novel, the way people are produced, again, it's kind of like Brave New World in which you have these huge vats in which the best genetic material is taken, proven based essentially on the battlefield of, of a very conflicted tribal social life on the streets. The, the winners of these contests have their DNA contributed to the pool, and that's where the next generation comes from. There's a, sta a steady population on, on Earth. For every person who dies, some of these gametes that are collected are, are released. This is all explained to Jim Parsons uh, in the early part of the novel after he is arrested and basically told he has to be punished for saving this woman's, or trying to save this woman's life. She was not later on killed. The punishment he gets is to be sent to essentially the off-world colonies, to Mars, I think it is where it's believed he'll be able to live out his life. This is where the society tends to put people who don't really conform and don't fit in. 
On his way to Mars, he goes on various adventures that eventually result in him being kidnapped or rescued, however you want to put it, by a group of subversives who resist the overall tendency of the world, particularly its rejection of life. But they had a very, so they, they want to ha help him in their movement, but they have a very specific purpose for them, for him. And, they, and that's they want him to save the life of someone who they have kind of suspended and preserved who's been shot with an arrow. And so his goal, he's been brought there essentially to save one life. Now, this group of people he's with are kind of interesting. They, they call themselves the Wolf Tribe. And of course, everyone in this world is sort of divided up into tribes. They also call themselves sometimes a lodge or sometimes it's the Wolf Lodge or the Wolf Tribe. They have mastered time travel. Now, time travel is something that this society has experimented with and began to develop. But mostly they used it in a way that Dick uses it in some of his other stories. And that's to kind of see the past or to grab certain things from the past or maybe to see the future. But moving people throughout time hadn't been mastered yet but they have they've achieved this another interesting thing about this wolf tribe is that they blame this kind of death cult that the world is you know part of or, or everyone is part of this basically they see the world as a massive death cult because it doesn't value life and doesn't want to extend life and, and sees death as not a horrible thing, but as something that's almost welcomed or praised. This is all blamed on European colonialism. And they see the, like, the original sin of the world was the Spanish conquest of the New World. So they kind of affiliate themselves with, with the Native Americans and they see this the entire world structure as kind of white European. Now this is interesting because races have been basically abolish, abolished through um, a racial amalgamation that's taken place in the, in the previous 500 years. Nevertheless, they see the core kind of philosophical concepts at the root of this society rooted in the European conquest and the devastation of, of the Americas. It's not an idea that Dick fully develops as well as he should have, but it's something I talked about in the previous episode a little bit. So it's an important point he's trying to get at. I don't think it's one of his strongest, and I don't think it's something he he did enough with, but it's kind of fascinating, you know, and it's one of his more overtly anti-imperial and anti-colonial messages, which we don't get a lot from, from Dick, especially because he's so fascinated by the frontier and the frontier, even in this novel, the frontier is kind of seen as a, a zone of salvation or a zone of cultural autonomy or differentiation, a place where people can go and kind of be their own self. He did this in uh, The Man Who Japed, for instance, as well. But Still, he's got this idea of colonialism and the, the frontier story of America as one of genocide and, and death. And it's something that this wolf, cult, wolf tribe embraces, or this interpretation of the past is something the wolf tribe embraces. Now, they're not really trying to overthrow everything yet, and they don't really, that's not why they want Parsons there. They basically want him to save one person's life. So with that, we can uh, continue, continue on. Um, so if you're reading along, this is... I'll, be, I'll start looking in this episode of chapter nine. So essentially where we left off is Dr. Parsons was shown this dead body and he's in this kind of, basically it's a replica of the old soul cube. The soul cube was what were all the gametes that are preserved for use in the future are stored. And there's something kind of like that. And there's a man in it. And the man's been shot through the chest with, with an arrow. So the woman who brought Parsons and, and sort of rescued him from exile to Mars is named Loris. 
and she shows him how they they had previously saved Jim Parsons' doctor bag before he was arrested um, by the man who showed him around. His name was Stenog. Before he was arrested, they, they saved his doctor's bag. Loris wants Parsons to attempt to save the man in stasis, so she kind of fully details why she wants him there. She reveals that this man is 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 her father. He has been in stasis for 35 years, really since before Loris was born. So although she is, he is his father, she doesn't really know him in any, you know, outside of the fact that he's just this body that's been preserved for all these years. But this is just how atrophied medical knowledge has been in this world is that they haven't found any way to, to save his life. So they've only thing they could do is keep him in the stasis. Parson is then given a tour of the lodge, the Wolf Lodge, which is kind of a self-sufficient community that's able to maintain itself and, and stay separate from the rest of the world. And that's how they're able to kind of try to sustain separate traditions and separate ideas and different interpretations of the past. Parsons also observes a physical resemblance between the tribal members who all seem um, to look distinct from others in the broader society that he was exposed to. So what he saw on Earth was this amalgamated uh, kind of racial homogeneity. So it's kind of all the races get mixed into one. But he sees these people as, as distinct and all having similar physical characteristics, and that didn't match that. So there's some kind of a different racial history going on with this subculture. But... After being told what his mission is, Parson readily agrees to attempt to save the man who's being kept in stasis in the cube and begins to prepare for, for an operation. I just want to talk briefly about the way he describes the self-sufficiency of this, this subculture of this lodge because it does bear on other themes that Dick has in his other works, particularly like the autofact, automation, and and self-sufficiency and the relationship between automation and and the levation of work and all that this is what he writes quote food was grown artificially in subsurface chemical tanks clothing and furniture were processed from plastic raw materials by robots working somewhere on the grounds building materials industrial supplies everything that was needed was manufactured and repaired on the lodge grounds a complete world the core of which like the city was the cube the miniature soul with which he would soon be working. He didn't have to be told how careful the secret of existence was kept. End quote. So it's just a little, a few words here, but it, it again reinforces an idea that Dick, had, you know, comes back to a lot in his early work, which is the auto fact and, and, you know, the end of work idea. And so even here we have kind of a mini post-scarcity culture. Okay, and then in chapter 10... They're about to do this procedure. So Jim Parsons goes right into the procedure. He wants to do a much more conservative approach, but Loris and the others push Parsons to complete the procedure all in one sitting. And so he eventually agrees to do that. He also wants to clear the room of all the observers, but you know this is really something these people have never seen before or experienced. So there's a huge crowd that's gathered of the members of the Wolf tribe that they're finally, this man is going to be saved. And they're going to see a medical procedure, a life-saving procedure. So eventually he agrees to go along with their ideas, which is to allow this crowd and then to try to do it all in one sitting. He, he removes the arrow. He, he works to repair the heart. So he does the procedure. 
With the procedure done, Loris is able to sit down and talk with Parsons, and the focus of their conversation is something that they were talking a little bit about before in the novel, which is really just how wasteful the society is, and the major critique that this wolf tribe has of society at large, which is that it doesn't, it simply doesn't value life. It's a very wasteful society. And the example of this, of course, is that the girl Parson had earlier saved, the one who was later killed, that she was only damaged in the face. She didn't even have any defect that would be inherited. Yet she was willing to die in order not to hold back the future of her tribe. And this is just reinforcing this idea that the individual doesn't matter and and life doesn't matter. And this results in a very in all this talent being wasted and all this potential being wasted by this kind of cycle of death. And this is Laura's complaining about this. She says, the government, the whole system here, the soul cube, the lists, that girl Ikara, the one you saved, she killed herself because she had been disfigured. She knew she dragged down the tribe when the list time came. She knew she'd score badly because of her physical appearance, but such things aren't inherited. She sacrificed herself for nothing. Who gained? What good did her death do? She was certain it was for the benefit of the tribe, for the race. I've seen enough death. Now, after this, they talk a little bit about essentially the question you might have as readers, like if they can control time travel, why don't they just go back in time and stop the this man from being shot in the first place rather than go through this trouble of bringing a doctor from the past to save his life? And they, she basically explains that changing the past is very difficult, that the past is is kind of written in, you know pretty firmly and it can't be really manipulated by through time travel. Now they exchange a brief intimate moment and, you know, Philip Dick rushes Roman relationships all the time. Uh, I think some of his better works, actually, where he tries in his 60s, in the in the 60s, where he has relationships. He either has, you either see relationships at the end of their of their journey or, you know, where people have had a past, but maybe don't know it, like in the maze of death. Or one of my favorite is in the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, where he just has two precogs basically get go to bed together because they know they're going to be lovers in the future anyways. So they just decide to get on with it. Here, you know, he's he does this a lot where he just kind of puts two people together and because they're boy and girl, they're going to end up um, together. Now, they do have this intimate moment in this in this chapter, but it's just kind of a brief kind of exchange of glances. But they're called back to the operating room where they find... That the man that they'd saved, the man that they took, they took out the arrow out of his heart. This operation was success, but now he has an arrow through his chest again. So what does this prove? Well, it seems to prove that the enemies of the wolf tribe, of the wolf lodge, also have control of time. So they were able to undo whatever it was that Parsons was able to do through his surgery. Well, so up to up to this point in the novel, we've only really met young people and in chapter 11 we start to see that there are a few people who are older and the wolf tribe one thing that makes it notable is that they've able they they haven't embraced this death cult so they've kept people alive and there are a handful of people who have been able to persevere and stay alive despite not having medical knowledge now so with this latest failure jim you know it was not really his failure it's just they didn't plan on their enemies having time travel as well and able to being able to manipulate it. So with this latest failure, Jim Parsons is introduced to an old woman. This is Loris's mother and also the wife of the man in the cube, obviously. And he's re- the man is actually, it's revealed to be named Korath, Korath, and the old woman is named Jephthah. 
And basically, the old woman despairs that nothing can really be done to save Corinth if the enemies have time travels well. So they said, you might as well just send Parsons back to his own time. We can't use him anymore. Parsons, though, decides at this point that he wants to stay, that he wants to help the Wolf Lodge a little bit more if he can. And he's introduced to an even older woman, the mother of Korath and, and Jephthah named Nixia. Now, you heard that right. Uh, everyone here is, is sort of intermarried in various ways. And it's acknowledged here that uh, basically Corinth and Jephthah are brother and sister, and they had um, Loris as, as her child. Anyways, but this mother of, these, of this pair is named Nix, Nix, Nixina. Nixina tells how Corinth had the idea of preventing the, quote, terrible 500 years. So although up to this point, the plot of the, the novel has been rather focused on just saving this one man's life, it's revealed that Corinth had a more grand ambition, and that was to prevent essentially European colonialism. The terrible 500 years is, is 1500 to 2000, which is basically the, the time period of Jim Parsons' life. He's right at the turn of the 21st century. So that the goal then is to stop the 500 years of European colonialism by stopping the conquest of the New World. And essentially their plan to do that is to use time travel to kill the European explorers as they arrived on the core coast of America. This would stop European invasions, allow the Native American people to control the destiny of world civilization rather than just being a victim of, of white genocide. Now, during an attempt to go back in time and kill Francis Drake, so that's the person they want to get. They want to kill Francis Drake in California. Corinth was shot with an arrow. Parsons hears this and he sympathizes with the mission despite being white and being a beneficiary of the European conquest of America. Parsons inv investigates the arrow he removed from Corinth's body and finds that the feathers are synthetic. And he also finds that the flint arrowhead was made with a metal chisel. Now, 16th century Native Americans. Now, Dick here, I think, makes a bit of a mistake. Certainly, they wouldn't have had synthetic feathers, so he's right on that. But I'm not so sure if they wouldn't have metal tools. Uh, there's You sometimes hear it said that Indians didn't mind, but that's not true across the Americas. There's a lot of diversity here of technology. But Dick wasn't, I think, especially not in 1953, that sophisticated on these questions. So he just kind of lumps the Indians together in this in this work. But essentially the idea here is that since the 16th century Native Americans lacked these technologies, Corinth must have been shot not by Indians or even by the Europeans who were arriving, but rather by another time traveler who would have had access to this technology. By the way, Francis Drake did go to California. The date of that was in 1579. So that's actually a real historical event that Dick was referring to. So there's some there's some research done here, but I, I still think he he tends to kind of lump Native Americans together here. And it's a bit unfortunate. And it would have been a stronger book had he known a little bit more about the Native American experience and Native American history. So with this realization, we, we are told or Jim is Jim is told through by Loris a bit more about this operation that led to Corinth's fatal injury. Of course, this was all before Loris was born. So she's retelling the tales that her culture has been sustaining. And the plan was to go back in time dressed as an Indian of a, a, a local Indian 
and then to kill Drake with modern weapons. And by killing Jake, Drake with modern weapons, this would then convince the English and the other Europeans that the Indians had superior weaponry and therefore would, they would be frightened f- from coming back. I mean, that's, it's kind of a weak plan, but that's essentially what, what it was. So basically destroying with such overwhelming technology that the English would never dare come to the continent again. She tells them how Nixia saved Corinth from being sterilized and was then able to use his gametes to father the entire wolf tribe. So the wolf tribe is, in a sense, really, everyone is interrelated because they all are based on the same gametes. And what sustained this tribe is that they've been able to control their reproduction. And this is something that makes them distinct from the rest of the tribes and really the rest of the world. Because in the rest of the world, reproduction is strictly controlled. Essentially, in this mean, it's the same thing you have kind of in, in Brave New World, as I said. But, you know, they've been able to kind of keep control of their own gametes, essentially. But that doesn't mean that everyone is sort of related. And that's why they all sort of look alike. So in a sense, Nixia and Corinth, in a way, are, you know, really the father and mother of the entire wolf tribe. Loris reveals that the wolf tribe believe themselves to be full-blooded Iroquois. Now, Parsons doubts this to be true, but Loris tells them that the mythology is more important than the truth, which is actually kind of a fascinating point because this comes up sometimes with the questions of, of Native American heritage and history, right? Because the anthropologists look at Native American history and say, well, you came... 13, 15, 14, you know, 16,000 years ago, depending on who you talk to. But there's this a rough timeline we have of when people from Eurasia migrated, you know, across from various ways. But most think it's through through the Bering Strait during the Ice Age when sea levels were lower. But there's also theories that people migrated across the Pacific. But anyways, we have an idea of when they came. And I know this all constantly being revised and updated, but there's kind of a, a clear date. And then, of course, other people came to the Americas, black people through the slave trade. You had uh, white imperialism and settler societies and all that. And that's the peopling of, of North America in a nutshell. Now, but if you were to talk to Native American cultures and listen to their stories and listen to their folklore, what they would tell you is, We've always been here, right? And our stories back this up. We don't have the stories of this migration so much. We have stories of always being here, of having been created in the Americas. And this becomes politically significant because it's really about ownership, right? And, and the stories claim a kind of a permanent ownership by Indian people of the continent. And the anthropological historical view tends to see very, very waves of migration and therefore you know, it's just who's first, right? And the question is, what's more important? Who's first or who's there now or who has the claim or who has the memory of, of being here? And it's all, it's kind of tied up into some of the politics of of, of how do we address the genocide of, of Indian people? And I don't know how conscious Dick was of this, but, but here, you know, claiming the mythology is more important than the truth is interesting. And of course, in in the United States, at least, I don't know about other places, but in the United States, it's sometimes fashionable for people to exaggerate how much Native American blood blood they have. So, you know, some of that might be going on here, too. So at this point, um, Parsons and Loris have sex. 
At which time he tells her that he wants to go back in time to witness Korn's death himself. So he wants to be there when it happens and maybe he could prevent it or stop it or intervene in some way. Parsons does not think this will really change the timeline, though, because he thinks it's already been altered. Um, but what he's figured out and why he wants to go back there actually has something to do with his real encounter before with Al Stenog, because he sees this portrait of Sir Francis Drake in the wolf tribe that they're maintaining. And he thinks that this portrait of Sir Francis Drake bears a really close resemblance to Al Stenog. So he starts to realize that Al Stenog, who was the man he met earlier in the story, the one who said, you have to go off to Mars, the one who showed him around earlier in the story, that he might be a time traveler posing as Sir Francis Drake. And once again, I think Dick is really on to something here with the racial politics at the heart of this novel. And so Loris talks to him about his racial background and says, you know, of course, there's no white people in the future, so he's a bit of an anomaly that way. But she says, we intended, we intended to preempt your ancestors, doctor. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, but if we had been successful, if we had been able to assassinate the white adventurers and pirates who came to the New World and established footholds, we would have installed our own stock ourselves. What do you think of that? And in response to this, Parsons thinks, well, basically of all the bad things white people did throughout history, he thinks about concentration camps and he thinks about uh, the witch burnings and things like that, but he contrasts it also with Elizabethans and Shakespeare who are presented a little bit more fondly uh, by him and he, he's a little bit conflicted but essentially he he realizes that he doesn't really have any sympathy for these white conquerors and he's in a sense on board this this mission so he kind of abandons his his white privilege if you will and in a way, what you have him doing here is is asserting his craft and his skill as a doctor for humanity over any kind of racial benefits he, he, he's, he's had in his life, which he acknowledges several times he he's, he's has. And so with this decision that he wants to go back and basically see for himself if El Stenog is also a time traveler and posing as Sir Francis Drake, committed to you know, keeping and in, in ensuring that Europeans conquer the Americas. So he goes then to, this is in chapter 13, he goes to Nixonia, the, the elder of the society, and asks for permission to witness the death of Corneth in his encounter with Drake. And Nixia reveals that she intends to accompany the tribe also, and she's going to be aided with a special chair that a member of the tribe named Helmer built for her. So she's going to go back in time as well with them. So it's going to be a whole party. The wolf tribe then prepares Parsons for the trip, and they do this by transforming his skin color and eye color to resemble Native Americans of the California coast in the 16th century. So they have these pictures and they're able to, you know, change them the way they do in Star Trek episodes, you know, when they need the crew needs to live with the local people. They, you know, kind of dress them up and color their skin and things. So that's what they do to Parsons. And then they go back in time. And in the past, they the party of wolf tribe members attempt to locate Drake along the coast. Parson very quickly is able to identify Drake as part of a landing party of people who, who coming off a boat. And after approaching Drake, Parsons does indeed identify him as Al Stenog in disguise and reveals himself as the, the man that he met earlier, the man who saved the young girl's life. 
and Stenog, Sir Francis Drake, begins to laugh at the realization that he's not only a time traveler, but he's facing this time traveler. And this time traveler is none other than this man he had basically probably forgotten about because, you know, it was a bit shocking he was a time traveler, but he wasn't that shocked, right? So Al Stenog kind of took it in a rather relaxed way that this time traveler had come and interfered with his world. Well, the reason was he knows time travel is, is real, so it's not that shocking for him. But he, this was a character he thought, you know, he got kind of uh, tossed off and sent to Mars. And so he's surprised to see him here. And he starts to maybe connect, maybe that um, Parsons has some relationship with this wolf tribe. Um, so this uh, this brings us really up to the climax of the, of the novel. So I'll, I'll save that for my finale episode on Dr. Futurity, which I'll post next. And... I also talk a little bit more of the themes I think in this novel. I think this book is a little bit clumsy thematically. I sometimes I'm not quite sure what Dick wants to say about the relationship between the old and the young and the relationship between Europe and this kind of death cult, he thinks. It's it's not clear why that sustains when all there are all these other aspects of European civilization, especially the you know, the white race itself have evaporated um, but there's a lot here I think that is interesting for us thinking back on one is of course the politics of how we understand the history of of the conquest of the Americas the the fact that the United States is is within the next century going to be a white minority country it's you know the groups now called minorities will be in the majority collectively um, sometime in the next in this century in the United States. So the the image of of a racial amalgamation is something that that will come true, maybe not quite in the way that's being described here, but some form of it in the sense that there's not going to be a clear dominant demography, you know, race in terms of demography in the United States, maybe still in terms of power and economic clout and political power and all that. But uh, that's a separate question. The the whole issue of of how we deal with youth and how we, sometimes we, we fetishize the youth. I mean, I think that's a key point in this book is we fetishize the youth so much in our media and in our kind of all the models are young, kind of on display. We kind of have this glorification of youth and beauty. But in fact, the system we live in is often dominated by the old. And of course, in this culture, we don't really have, except for the wolf tribe, we have old people, but we don't in the other parts but it's a very stagnant world nevertheless everything is controlled and managed by bureaucracy despite everyone being young and i think there's some echoes of our own world in that that relationship and i think millennials might read this book and think about the you know the struggles they're facing economically in terms of debt in terms of lack of good jobs difficulty buying homes and understand a little bit about this you know the feeling of young people in this novel that their lives are sort of thrown away and misused and mishandled and wasted by a system that they had no say in in constructing. But I'm going to come back to some of these themes in my finale of, of my review of Dr. Futurity. So thanks so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments about the themes explored in this book, or if you've read this book and you have your own ideas about it, I know it's not one of the books by Philip Dick that gets commonly read, but um, nevertheless, I, I think it's, it's worth looking at. Um, so if you have read it and you have your own comments about it, please leave them below. Um, but if not, I'll, I'll 
Or you can write, but first you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com if you want to send me an email and I'll try to respond to you on air in a few upcoming episode. Um, but if, if not, that's fine. I'll see you in my next episode, which will be the finale of my review of Dr. Futurity. So thanks again for listening. my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving dies.